selfies. You know, those uh, photos that we take of ourselves and share on social media. Selfies are a modern-day form of self-expression. Uh, but before the advent of selfies and smartphones, Facebook and Instagram, people shared themselves in other ways. You know, people used to write letters, for instance. Um, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament it kept in touch with all of his friends throughout the the uh, ancient world around the Roman Empire by writing letters to them. Jesus shared who he was and who he is through his words and through his actions, um, especially with, with his words. He told memorable stories, which we call parables. He engaged in lively conversations with people, some of them believers, some unbelievers, some of them uh, notable religious authorities, others just common uh, everyday people. And Jesus asked really provocative questions. I think one of the most probing questions that Jesus ever asked was, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And some people saw Jesus as a teacher. Others thought of him as a prophet. Still others came to believe that he was their Messiah, their Lord, and even God. Uh, but the question I want to look at in this series is this. Who does Jesus say that he is? The Gospel of John includes seven really startling statements that Jesus made about himself. And each of these seven statements begins with provocative words, I am. Now, one of the, the questions you might have is, why would those words, I am, be so provocative? We'll look at that in a moment. What, what exactly is Jesus saying about himself? And what's he saying about us when he announces, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. This week we're launching a new message series called Selfies of the Savior, and we're starting this series with Jesus saying in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Now, before we can unpack the meaning of that statement, before we can really understand what Jesus is saying in that statement, it's really important for us to understand why Jesus' use of the words I am is so provocative, not just was, but is so provocative. And to get an answer to that question, we have to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, to the story of Moses. Most of you know the story of Moses, either uh, you know, from reading it in Scripture or seeing Charlton Heston in uh, the Ten Commandments or maybe the animated version in The Prince of Egypt. But um, as most of you know, Moses was a Hebrew but even though he was a Hebrew, he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, Pharaoh being the ruler of, uh, of Egypt. Um, he uh, was kind of adopted as a child when Pharaoh's daughter found um, Moses uh, in a little basket in the Nile River. He was taken in, raised as kind of Egyptian royalty and so on. As a young man, he grew up and he sees uh, someone kill, uh, he sees uh, 
an Egyptian, rather, mistreating a Hebrew slave. And in his anger, he kills this Egyptian um, overlord. And recognizing, realizing that uh, he had been, um, uh, been seen doing that, uh, he realizes that he has to, to leave Egypt. So he escapes, uh, goes to the wilderness of Midian, where he lives for decades, uh, raising livestock, starting a family there. One day, as he's out uh, you know, caring for the livestock, he comes across a bush which is burning but is not consumed. And he draws closer to investigate because he's never seen anything like this before. And when he does, the Lord speaks to him. The Lord God speaks to him from this, this bush. He tells him to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. And he begins to um, instruct Moses, uh, telling him that he is to return to Egypt where he is to tell the Pharaoh that he should release the Jewish people from their bondage. Um, Moses isn't sure that he wants to do that. He's worried about his own life. He's worried about uh, whether he uh, is capable of, of doing that sort of thing. And so he pushes back a little bit. Uh, but God says, look, I'll be with you. Um, I'll have others around you to help you do this. Moses, uh, during this conversation, uh, asks, who should I say sent me? Basically, he's asking the question, who are you? And God answers Moses from the burning bush, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And in this passage, in, in Exodus chapter 3, God is revealing his holy name to Moses. Um, most scholars believe that that holy name uh, was Yahweh. It's sometimes uh, been translated um, Jehovah. But if you have a um, copy of the Bible and you look in the Old Testament, every time you see the words the Lord uh, capitalized, as in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, Surely in goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Every time you see those words, uh, it stands for, it's a replacement for the holy name of God, Yahweh. It means the great I am. It was a name that was considered so sacred by the Jewish people that they would never speak it, ever, with one exception. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter into the temple, into the holiest place in the temple, the Holy of Holies. They'd tie a rope around him because he was going to be in the presence of the Lord God, and he would say the name of the Lord God one time before he left. Oh, this is why, oh, translated into the Greek of the New Testament then, became ego emi. Those are the words that Jesus spoke. When he said, I am the bread of life. This is why Jesus' use of the words, I am, is so provocative. And it's why it caused Jesus' critics and ultimately Jesus' enemies to ask, is this guy claiming to be God? As he seems to be doing. Uh, and, and we see a great example of this in John 8, 58, where he responds to uh, part of a conversation 
uh, by saying to the people, very truly, amen, amen, or uh, truly I say unto you in some translations, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is making an incredible claim here. In every single one of the selfies of the Savior that we're going to be looking at in this series, Jesus is implying that he is not just another human being. He is stating that he is no one less than Lord God himself in human flesh. So what does Jesus mean then when he says, I am the bread of life. A little bit of context. Just the day before Jesus had had spoken those words, he had performed the miracle of the loaves and fishes. You remember that story? Uh, Jesus takes uh, five little loaves of bread. They'd be something like buns or or biscuit size and a couple of fish. And he feeds a multitude of over 5,000 people with that. Jesus, or excuse me, John tells us that that miracle took place. By the way, that's the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. And John gives us some really interesting information that the other three Gospels don't give us. John tells us that that miracle took place just as the Passover was approaching. Now, why would that matter? What difference does that make? The Passover was and is a time when the Jewish people celebrate God's delivering them from bondage in Egypt the Moses story. And it involves retelling the story of the 10 plagues and about the angel of death passing over the Hebrew people and sparing the Hebrew children from death. They retell the story of the parting of the Red Sea and God's giving Moses the the law on Mount Sinai. And also tells us about the Hebrew people's time in the wilderness when God provided them with food every day for 40 years, a strange food from heaven that was called manna. It would appear on the ground and people would gather it up and they would have something to eat while they were living for 40 years in the desert. Now what's important to know about this is that the Jewish people believed that when the Messiah came, manna would appear once again on the earth. And that's the context in which Jesus tells the crowd who has come to him looking for more bread, I am the bread of life. I'm the manna that was promised. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be hungry thirsty. Now, one of the things that that is, uh, I I want to encourage you to do is, if you have time, and I'm sure you do today, to go home and read all of John chapter 6, because if you do that, you will uh, see that there's this ongoing conversation in John chapter 6 between Jesus and this crowd that comes looking to him for more bread that revolves around um, their thinking about two different kinds of bread. Uh, The first kind of bread is that everyday bread that you can um, either make for yourself or, um, you know, more often go to the store and buy. 
Um, this past, um, let's see, when was it? Friday evening, I guess, Peg and I uh, just got back. We returned from a, a week in Colorado. By the way, it was beautiful. The mountains, the trees, I mean, it's the height of, uh, of autumn in, um, in Colorado right now. Uh, one of the things that, that we realized is that when we got home, that we didn't have anything to eat for breakfast. There were a couple of eggs in the refrigerator and so on. And so even though we were really tired because we got back kind of late, one of the things I do every week is I make fresh bread at home. And so Friday night, I made fresh bread. I used a bread maker, set it so it would uh, be ready at, I think, 8 o'clock in the morning, something like that. Slept in a little bit late. Peg got up in time to, to kind of take it out and stuff like that. But when I got up the next morning, I opened the door from our bedroom, and it, the whole house just smelled like fresh bread. You know that smell? And what's even better then is when you take it out of the bread maker, out of the toaster, whatever, put some butter on it, and it just melts. And there's nothing like homemade fresh bread. It's awesome. Um, there's just one problem with that kind of bread, though. Two problems. Um, one is that it's really good and it really satisfies us for a while, but given enough time, we get hungry again. It doesn't satisfy us forever, just for a little bit. Another problem with it is that it stays fresh for a while, but you give it enough time and, um, you know, just put it in the bread box for a week or so, open it up, and it's a science experiment. So that's one kind of bread, and it's great, uh, you know, as far as it goes. Jesus, using the, the, that bread as a symbol, describes another kind of bread, capital B. And the bread that he's talking about is a bread that fills us and that feeds us and that sustains us forever. And it never goes bad. I am the bread of life, he says. And whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus here is stating a, a life-changing truth that lies at the very heart of the gospel, that Jesus meets our deepest needs. He, Jesus, meets our deepest needs. Um, you know, if you could ask God for anything right now, what would it be? Um, and, and I really want you to think deeply about that question because it's not like, well, you know, don't make it a thing that's just temporary. What's your deepest need? I, you know, I think probably one of our deepest needs is to know that um, our loved ones, our relationship with our loved ones, uh, it's not temporary, but that it's really going to last, and I mean last into eternity. Jesus meets our deepest needs. Question, have you, have you ever thought about um, where most of our problems come from? And let me give you some examples of, of this. I'll start out with some kind of easy ones. 
Why is it that we can't stick to a diet? Or why is it that we can't get out, seem like we can't get out of debt? Or why is it that we struggle in our relationships, even with people we love deeply? Why is it that we, we can't maintain healthy habits? Um, there's a book that was written in, a couple of years ago called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. And in this book, these two brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, point out that one of the primary obstacles to lasting change in our lives is this sort of conflict that is hardwired into our brains. Um, and they describe it in terms of uh, like our rational side and our emotional side. There's our rational mind that wants to lose weight. You go, you know, I need to take off, you know, 10 or 20 pounds here. And then there is our emotional side that could care less of what I need and just wants to polish off that pint of Ben and Jerry's because I had a hard day today. It's very short term. There's our rational side. And that rational side is that side that says, you know, I need, we need as a family to, to save more for our kids' college education or for our retirement or so that we could be debt-free. And then there's that other side that says, I don't care what you think. I want to eat out tonight because I don't want to do dishes. I'd like to get a, a new car I'd like to get season tickets to Disneyland because Disneyland is so much fun. I want to buy a big screen TV, even though the one we have is really nice. But I'd like one that's bigger and has a better picture. There's our rational side that, that wants to, to get close and stay close to God and uh, participate in worship and be in a growth group and serve other people. And then there's that other side that says, yeah, that's great and stuff, but man, I'd love to skip church today and maybe sleep in or head to the beach, right? And on and on we could go. Now, none of, of this is new. This is just a part of human nature. There is the rational side that thinks long-term, and then there's the, the emotional side that thinks very, very short-term. And, and none of this is new. We see this described in the Scripture when the Apostle Paul famously admits in Romans chapter 7, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I could just imagine Paul writing this out as he's eating Ben and Jerry's, you know, but here's, here's a big part of the problem, and this is why I think that the, the, that emotional side of us um, oftentimes has so much power. A big part of the problem is that we are trying to satisfy our heart's deepest longing with things that don't satisfy. Someone famously said that within each and every human being, there's this God-shaped space Augustine, our, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, one of his famous prayers and his confessions. And we have these restless hearts and uh, we have these deep longings, but, and, and the thing is, we try to, to fill that, that empty space, that God-shaped space with other stuff. 
So we, we are having a hard time at, at work or in a relationship or we find ourselves getting discouraged or feeling defeated. And rather than asking for God's help, rather than turning to God, rather than looking to Scripture for counsel, what do we do? Well, maybe we sit down with that Ben and Jerry's and go, man, I feel so crummy. And by the way, does that make it better? No, it makes it worse because then we're going, you know, I'm just trying to escape here. And why do I keep, you know, gaining weight? I'm just so depressed and so confused about this. See, while we might take momentary pleasure from overeating or overspending, we do that too. In the long run, none of that stuff makes things better. What does it do? It makes it worse, right? Just buy something that you think will make you happy. And then wait a couple of weeks and ask yourself if it really made any difference at all. The thing is, if, if we're trying to address a spiritual problem, and by the way, I think every problem is a spiritual problem. If we're trying to address a spiritual problem by spending or, or eating or whatever, it's not going to work. It's not enough. It's never enough. Because we're trying to solve a problem with something that doesn't work. We try to find satisfaction and we all do this. We try to find satisfaction in things that really don't satisfy us. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What he's doing, he's announcing that he is the one who truly does meet our deepest needs. You know, our need for hope, our need for forgiveness, our need for love, our need to live um, with purpose. He meets, he meets our needs for purpose and meaning. He meets our need for forgiveness. He meets our, our need for a solution to the towering universal problem of death. The terrible thought the terrible thought of eternal separation from God and from the people we most love. Nothing else, nothing else, and no one else can meet those needs. Everything else is a substitute, and every substitute falls short. Now, Jesus can meet those needs because of a second truth that he makes really plain and clear in John chapter 6, and it's this, that where Jesus announces that he came from heaven, from God, as God, as a gift from God. I am the, the living bread that, comes, that came down from heaven, he says in John 6, 51. Jesus came from heaven. You know, some, some people... Um, wonder why Jesus had to be crucified. And there are really two answers to that question. There is the big biblical theological answer. And the big answer to that question is that Jesus was crucified um, because he chose to be. He took our place on the cross 
to pay, for, to pay the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and so that we could have eternal life. That's kind of the big biblical theological reason. But there's kind of a human, look, looking at it purely from a human level, there's another reason why Jesus was crucified. He was put to death because he claimed to be God. He was crucified for the um, theological crime of blasphemy, claiming to be God. Now, where does he, he do that? Uh, he does it all over the place in his, both his, his words and his actions. The I am sayings that we're looking at in this series, every single one of them, I am, I am, I am. His forgiving people their sins. Sins that weren't committed against him, but sins that were committed against God. How could Jesus forgive those unless he were God? His authoritative way of interpreting Scripture. All the other teachers, uh, uh, all the other rabbis that were his contemporaries would just repeat what Scripture said. Jesus would say, as he does in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, where does he get off doing that? But I say to you, you shall not even be angry with your brother or sister. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus says, claiming this authority, that if you even lust after a person in your mind, that itself is a sin. And then we have statements like this one. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Makes it absolutely clear. Jesus claimed to have come from heaven. And he had to come from heaven. He had to come from heaven because he couldn't meet our deepest needs if he hadn't. He'd just be another person. Now, there have always been people who um, have thought that it, it's enough to see Jesus simply as a great moral teacher, possibly a prophet. But they kind of draw the line and refuse to see him as Savior, Lord, and God. But it's really important um, that we take that additional step because that's how Jesus presents himself. I am the bread of life, came from heaven. That's how Jesus presents himself in everything he does, in everything he says. There's a, uh, a passage that I know a number of you will be familiar with. We've talked about it and touched on it from time to time. The memorable passage in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where he, he writes, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. Why, why shouldn't we say that? Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Jesus, through his words and his actions, through these great I am statements, saying I am the bread of life who's come down from heaven, is making an extraordinary claim that calls on us to make an absolutely critical decision. Is he who he said he is? So Jesus presents us with this life-changing choice. Will we accept him on his own terms? On his own terms as our Savior and Lord and God who came from heaven to meet our deepest needs for forgiveness, for meaning and for purpose and for the gift of eternal life. This, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like your ancestors ate. He's talking about the Hebrew people in the wilderness eating that manna. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread, Jesus says, will live forever. You know, bread is only useful to people who receive it. It serves no purpose if it isn't eaten. The life-changing choice that we are presented in Jesus Christ is receiving and welcoming him into our lives on his terms. And how do we do that? How, How do we receive him? Well, first of all, by believing what the Bible says about him, and especially by believing what Jesus said about himself. You know, where do we get off making up our ideas of who Jesus is anyway? Why don't we believe what he tells us about himself? And the second, second, by trusting him, by trusting him, by following his teaching. Um, this, this weekend's a really important weekend for me personally uh, for two reasons. One is that I, um, my very first weekend here at Stonebridge Community Church uh, was, uh, first weekend as your, your pastor was the first weekend in October 29 years ago today. So that's, that is something that makes it really cool. Another thing that makes it really cool for me is I was baptized on this weekend 50 years ago today. Some of you are going, 50? Do you live that long? Anyway, but... <laughs> Yeah, I was, uh, I was a senior in high school. You can do the math. I'm 67 now. I'll just give it up, right? <laughs> I was 17 years old. Um, I had not grown up in um, a church-going family. Um, my mom was kind of interested in, in spiritual things, 
But and my my dad was a police officer and uh, and really didn't feel comfortable going to church for a, a number of of his own reasons. Um, but there was a, a church in my hometown that decided to do an outreach to uh, in our community, and this would have been the late '60s, you know, generational wars and all this kind of stuff going on, and. Um, this group of people that, you know, opened up the church doors to kids that didn't go to church. They had this coffee house ministry on Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. And it was um, in that context, my growing relationships and friendships with the people um, who ran that coffee house that um, I was baptized my senior year in high school on this particular Sunday, the first Sunday in October. Um, and I, I give a lot of credit to, um, to the people who, uh, who were leaders of that church and had a vision for people who didn't know Christ. Um, and it's probably always shaped my ministry. It certainly has shaped my ministry here at Stonebridge Community Church because we want to be a church for people that don't go to church. A, pe- a place where people will feel welcome no matter who they are, what their past, no matter what kind of questions they have, no matter where they've been in their spiritual journey. Uh, we want to welcome every, whatever church background, if any, you came from. We have members of, of Stonebridge who come from Jewish backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, Baptist backgrounds, people like me, unchurched backgrounds. But what we have in common is this, Jesus Christ and that's really our, uh, our mission here and our ministry here at Stonebridge Community Church and, and has been the burden of my ministry my entire life is to point people to Jesus who is the bread of life. He's the one who, who satisfies uh, us. And like all of you, you know, my spiritual journey, you know, hasn't been a straight line. It's had some zigs and it zags and so on. And I've had my share of, of questions and experienced my share of, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But I will tell you this, um, I'm really glad that I trusted Jesus Christ when I was uh, 17 years old. Um, because I saw in him uh, someone who could meet my deepest needs for truth. Uh, for someone who lives with absolute integrity, someone who, whose life was shaped by love, and his love for us was so great that he was willing to sacrifice anything, himself included, so that we could be in a relationship with God, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could enjoy the gift, and it is a gift of eternal life. It's not anything that we can earn. We're saved by grace through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of, of God. So I, I just want to say this weekend, on uh, the 50th anniversary of my baptism, that decision to follow Jesus Christ is not something I have ever regretted. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you today to follow him. Because you, you've been trying to fill your life and find satisfaction in things ultimately that don't satisfy. God, through Jesus Christ, will never disappoint you and will never let you down. I am the bread of life, Jesus says.
Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. I have sure found that to be true, and I hope that you have, and if you haven't, I hope that you will, because he is the bread of life.